your Bibles tonight, if you would please, to 1 John chapter 5. And this evening we are entering into the final stretch towards finishing this very powerful letter that the Apostle John wrote to struggling first century Christians. And this is a, another example of the timelessness of the Bible and how that's proved because we find ourselves in the same kinds of troubles and doubts that people experienced in the first century. Uh, we are blessed not to live under the types of persecutions that they had to endure. Uh, and it's good reason to believe, of course, that those trying times that these Christians went through contributed to their lack of confidence in their salvation. Uh, in addition to their persecution, they had the disadvantage of the availability of teachers. Uh, the apostles, of course, did their best to get the word out. They sent letters to churches, as the Apostle John has done with this one. But communications were slow in that time, and heresies had time to fester. And so people would go long periods of time struggling with different issues where they couldn't get answers because they didn't have the teachers that they needed, they didn't have the resources that they needed. And so you can understand how heresy would begin to, I mean, just grow inside of a church like this because they didn't have that availability of the, of the Word of God and the resources that we have today. So we do thank God for this, that we have much more availability to God's Word in the past 2,000 years, we have been blessed for all of the books that have been written, things that explain God's Word, books that have been written by godly men, men who have great insight into uh, the Scriptures. And I just thank the Lord every day when I go into my office and look around and see all of those books that are there and what men have written to help us. And I have commentaries and, and uh, systematic theologies that explain some of the troubling things that we have in the Word of God. And it'd be difficult to do without those kinds of resources. And I, I, I guess I became much more aware of this when and how blessed that I am to have that kind of information when Pastor Moongo was here, uh, talking about him just a moment ago. But I, I was simply amazed in speaking to him about how he is able to do so much with so little. He doesn't have the advantage of the materials that we have here. And when he came here and he looked at all of that, of course, he's very much aware, or was very much aware of the uh, deficiencies that he has in understanding certain things in the Word of God because he doesn't have that availability. In Second Timothy, the Apostle Paul wrote to the young pastor Timothy, and he said, And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Now, in East Africa, where Pastor Mwango ministers, there is a great need for Bible teachers. Uh, the commitment of the gospel to faithful men that can help others is, is, uh, is very much needed there. And, and the physical presence of, of having teachers there to help those men and, and to do what they need to do, they just don't have that same availability that we have. And this is where things like books and those kinds of resources that have been written by faithful men are so important. And that aspect of the teaching is, is important to people, and that is a great advantage for the church that has those. And we have been blessed, especially in the past 500 years, that there has been so much written on the Word of God. 
And so when Pastor Moongo was here and he saw what we had available, he was very anxious to put those things into the hands of the preachers that he teaches and ones that he's training for ministry. And as I tell you about that, I certainly don't want to diminish the worth of having the Bible alone as our resource. Uh, and Brother Mongo is just absolutely remarkable in the diligence that he has in studying the Bible and then coming to correct doctrinal interpretations. And of course, that's possible because the Holy Spirit leads us into truth. And so for a person that lends himself to the study of the Word of God and prays about that, then God will certainly lead him in the truth. Truth. But going back to that verse in 2 Timothy, the Bible also teaches that God uses teachers. He uses human instrumentality. And teaching can be more than just having someone physically present with you. When the Bible says to commit these things to faithful men and to teach them, I'm sure that the Lord had in mind that there were, were, it wasn't always possible to have a teacher right there in the room with someone. And so that's where you have these good books, the things that are written, they come into play. And if you were to ask me, where did you get your understanding of the Bible? Well, I would tell you that it wasn't mostly sitting in a classroom, but it came from years of reading and reading and reading and studying and studying and more study and studying the Bible and studying the books that I have in my office. So we have that advantage over first century Christians. We have this rapid means of communication. We have years of diligent studies by those who are able to write down what they've learned, and they pass that on to future generations. But there's also a disadvantage for us in that. God has blessed us again with that rapid communication and the printing press and a great number of teachers, but it's always Satan's work to pervert what God has given. The good things that God gives, Satan perverts. And so with that multiplication of good materials and good teachers, there's also come a multiplication of errors and heresies and bad teaching and bad books. And never before... In the history of Christianity, has there been so much evil that's spewed out of the mouths of men, out of their, from their pens or from their computers or whatever, and there's just all of this confusion that's out there. And so today, it's much different than it was in the first century. In the first century, Christianity was the fastest growing religion in the world, and now that has changed where false Christianity is the fastest religion, growing religion in the world. You just talk to our missionaries, and you'll discover how much the uh, charismatic movement, for instance, has made inroads into these different places, and where the gospel at one time was faithfully preached and people were believing, now people have become very confused by these false gospels that are out there. So you have Mormons and you have Jehovah Witnesses that are advancing in unprecedented numbers in other countries. Uh, some time ago, I was telling you about the largest church in America that's located in Seoul, South Korea. They uh, claim to have uh, 500,000 members and they're still growing. And they use innovative methods to reach people. Some of those we might even want to emulate ourselves. And so not all, the, not all of their methods are bad. But one thing that's happened to that church is that the prosperity gospel has taken it over and the charisma has taken it over. And so in effect, you have half a million people with a false gospel in their church. And of course, you know that I don't mind mentioning names. And so we can add to that Joel Osteen, who has 43,000 people every Sunday in 
his church in Houston. And there, uh, you know, he takes in over $70 million a year. And that's, that's an old figure. And um, they take that money in, and this man preaches to all of these people and many millions more by way of TV and by his books. And what does he offer? He has a deficient gospel, which is no gospel at all. And so there are millions of people that die and go to hell wondering about the truth. And they hear this preaching, and a man like Joel Osteen has caused them to trust in something that gives them a false hope of salvation. I mean, that, that preaching is woefully short on the elements, necessary elements of the gospel. Well, you might say, what does that have to do with First John? Well, everything that I've said tonight is pertinent to our study. We're looking at the 13th verse of the 5th chapter, where John says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. That is the purpose statement of this letter. So for four chapters and more, John has dealt with these tightly packed, interwoven arguments contrasting true Christianity with false Christianity. And he sums up all of that information with his purpose statement. He's written to Christians who are having trouble with false teachers that have tried to confuse them on fundamental truths of the gospel. So the issue here is assurance. How do you know that you have eternal life? And can you actually be assured of that? And even that question is an unsettled one. I mean, the many years that we've had of the correct teaching of the Word of God has not diminished these assertions that are made by false teachers that say you cannot know for sure that you have eternal life. And that seems to be a very strange claim in light of what we've just read here in this 13th verse because John very clearly tells us that it is his purpose to let us know that assurance of eternal life can be known. Now, the Roman Catholic Church made a statement at the Council of Trent in the 16th century, and they said, A believer's assurance as a pardon of his sins is a vain and ungodly confidence. Cardinal Bellarmine, who was an expert in Roman Catholic dogma, said that assurance of salvation is the prime area of heretics. Much of what was said at the Council of Trent was in response to the Protestant Reformation. Uh, Martin Luther was challenging the many heretical teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. And so they had this battle that was going on between them. And uh, they were fighting over which one of them was the heretic. And so the Catholic Church taught and they say that a person can't know that he has eternal life and they say that assurance even to think that you have assurance is an ungodly thought and of course Rome has a vested interest in keeping people from believing they could have assurance of salvation because they want people to believe that the church has power over their lives and the church wants them to keep pouring in their allegiance and their money to help ensure that they have eternal life. And so if they ever came to the point that they said, well, now you can be sure of it, then what would happen? Well, the money dries up and they quit lining their pockets with uh, the things that people bring and the, the, the money that they bring in order to try to buy their eternal life. And those are the kinds of teachings that have enriched the Roman Catholic Church for centuries. 
And it's interesting that Augustine, who lived long before the 16th century, long before the Council of Trent, in fact, he was a thousand years before then, he wrote, to be assured of our salvation is no arrogant stoutness. It is our faith. It is no pride. It is devotion. It is not presumption. It is God's promise. And certainly that squares more with Scripture than the Council of Trent does. In John 17, that entire chapter is spoken by Jesus to this very issue that people might know him, that they might have confidence in him, that they do have eternal life. The fact that we believe is the assurance of eternal life. We believe and so we have eternal life. That's what John says in verses 11 and 12. And this is the record that God hath given to us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. So we have this grand purpose of the epistle for troubled Christians, for those that have been hit hard by false claims that are made by false teachers. There is a way for them to know that they do have eternal life as a present possession. Well, before we get into the outline tonight, there there are a couple more observations that I'd like to make as an introduction to this lesson. And one of them concerns... Uh, similar words that uh, John wrote in the gospel account, and then the other is about the doctrine of assurance itself. Now, first of all, in the doctrine of assurance, this is the doctrine that says that we can be certain of our salvation in the present. And that statement might be confusing in a couple of ways, because many people, or many times, we assert the doctrine of assurance as contained in two other doctrines, which would be perseverance and preservation of the saints. And those are two very closely related doctrines, and both of them affirm eternal life, and they affirm it from two different sides. Perseverance is the human side. And it says that once we have believed in Christ, that we will never apostatize from the faith. That our continuance in the faith is evidence that we have been truly born again. Now, interestingly, there are, there are some Baptists that have very seriously misunderstood this doctrine, and they say, well, the Bible does not teach perseverance. And so they make it a doctrine by their misinterpretation, which says that we are self-dependent in the area of keeping our salvation. But that's really an ignorant explanation of what the Old, Test- the old uh, Confessions of Faith say. Our perseverance is not dependent upon us. It's assured because God's Spirit is in us by faith, and that Spirit, God's Spirit, keeps our faith active. That's what Philippians 1 verse 6 says, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And so those that would preach against that doctrine are making a fallacious claim. It's an unsubstantiated claim. And so they use a straw argument refuting a position that we don't even believe. And that's why I call it an ignorant claim. The Bible teaches that we must persevere. We must or if we don't, we can't lay claim to eternal life. So we look at that as the human side of the argument. We call it the human side, even though it is the power of God that enables us to persevere. Then the other side of that is eternal security. That's the preservation of the saints. And to this, uh, all Baptists that I know of, uh, except free will Baptists, which aren't Baptists at all, but they will agree to this uh, because this is entirely God's side. That God has made a promise of eternal life, and uh, believers 
once our faith is genuine, if it is truly genuine and it's rightly placed, then we are justified in God's sight and all the impediments that militate against the holiness and justice of God have been met in Christ and he is our substitute and therefore God has ensured our happiness and our holiness in the eternal state. Now, we talk about perseverance and preservation. Both of those doctrines speak more to the guarantee of the eternity of our spiritual life. That's what we would call the doctrine of eternal life itself. Whereas, on the other hand, the doctrine of assurance concerns this point in time, this point right now, that we can claim eternal life, that we have it in us as a present possession So that would beg the question, if it's in us now and it is a a present possession, then can it be lost? Could you lose that possession? And there are some people in the Christian faith that say that it can. Methodists, Wesleyans, Assemblies of God, Pentecostals, and as I mentioned, Free Will Baptists, they all believe that salvation can be lost. And so that's where we invoke those two great doctrines of perseverance and preservation. The Bible proves that eternal life can't be lost. So it's important for us then to understand this this subtle distinction in the doctrine that John teaches that eternal life is a present possession. He says, he that hath, present, hath, the Son, hath life. And of course, he's not speaking of physical life there. I mean, he's too brilliant and has too little space to deal with inane arguments, and so he is obviously talking about our eternal life. Now, the second piece that I'd like to draw your attention to is the similar statement that John makes in the Gospel of John and how the the two statements are made for slightly different purposes. In the Gospel account, John wrote in John 20, verses 30 and 31, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Now you'll notice that that sounds a whole lot like 1 John 5.13. But the audiences for those two statements are different. In the gospel accounts, and this would hold true for Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the purpose of recording all of these many acts and teachings of Jesus is so that the unbeliever might know that salvation is in Jesus Christ and that they can obtain eternal life by their faith in him. So the purpose of the gospel accounts is conversion. So John says, would say it this way, I'm not writing this just so that you'll know an historical account of Jesus. I'm not writing this just to give you a biography of him. I wrote this so that you might know that you, might, that you can be converted, that you can be saved, and if you believe, you will be saved, and you will be given eternal life. And we can see that purpose very clearly in the Gospel of John because he sets out very early in, the, in, that, um, in that Gospel account to prove or to show these things. I mean, he starts out there, and like, for instance, in the third chapter uh, of, the, of the account there, and he goes into this conversation that takes place between Jesus and Nicodemus. And from that chapter, we get the teaching of monergistic regeneration in the third verse and in the fifth verse. We get the effectual call of 
the Holy Spirit in the 8th verse. We get the love of God for lost sinners in the 16th verse and also the instrumental cause of salvation, which is faith. That comes in that same verse. We get sure deliverance from hell in verses 16, 17, and 18. And on and on you go. The message is given over and over again that faith in Jesus Christ is what brings eternal life. And so the Gospel of John approaches this from the side of the conversion of lost sinners, and it does that all the way through that gospel account. So John then says in the 20th chapter, in the similar verse, this is written so that you might believe and have life in his name. So conversion, that's paramount in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. But this is not the issue when we come to 1 John five thirteen. Now, eternal life is still the issue or still a subject here but now John is addressing believers these things have I written unto you that believe so these are people that have believed people that are already converted and they need to know that there is a way they can be sure of this gift of eternal life right now it is their present possession it's not some dubious hope that they may or may not have it sometime in the future So John lays out for us in this epistle some very important proofs of this. There are uh, two important factors that I really want to deal with in these two messages in these these two weeks, Uh, this one tonight and then after a couple of weeks from now we'll get the second part of this. But we're going to spend some time here tonight talking about this first one, not a whole lot of time because I've already given you the setup for it. And so I want to talk to you tonight about the stages to reach assurance. How do you finally come to the place that you are assured of eternal life? Well, the stages are sprinkled throughout this epistle, and they're really not very difficult for us to discern. Uh, Every person that goes from being a lost, fearful sinner to a fully confident child of God will go through these stages. And they're really not hard. They're very simple. The first one is hearing the word. The first stage to get assurance is to hear the word. So you have to be made aware that God has spoken and that God has said something to man in the way about eternal life. Now the information that we have concerning this is disseminated in the pages of scripture. That's the way that God speaks. And so the normal way that people come to faith in Christ is by hearing what God said in scripture. Now, if you look at Paul's argument, uh, if we were to look at that in Romans chapter 1, it's evident that there is something missing from the natural revelation of God. Now, what God has done, he has spoken indisputably about his existence through the creation. Paul said the heathen knows about the existence of God. He's without excuse not to know the existence of God. Psalmist wrote in Psalm 19:1, "The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork." So all people are aware that God exists, and then God even gives further proof by writing His laws upon the human heart. And we also find that in the Book of Romans, uh, chapter one. And so that's the natural revelation that God gives us Himself, and that and that is a testament. That's an evidence to his existence and the fact that no matter where you go no matter what culture no matter what time period of history you find in all places everywhere people believe that there is a God and that's a testimony to God's self-revelation or the revelation through that comes through creation 
But what man does not know innately by God writing the law upon his heart or by giving evidence of himself in the creation, what he does not know innately is how to have a relationship with God. That comes by God speaking specifically to man. Now, interestingly, this is what the writer of Hebrews says. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. So God at first revealed himself through the prophets. He spoke to them, they wrote down his words, and that's how we got the Old Testament. And all of those men that wrote and were prophets, in some sense had a knowledge of God only in a veiled form. They were able to see God through types and shadows, things that were given through the law and through the sacrificial system. But then God sent Jesus to be the full revelation of the invisible God. And in these last days, the writer of Hebrews says, he is the spokesman that God's people need to hear. So God's word is there, it's been spoken, the truth can be known, and people need to be told about it. Well, it should be evident to us that if what we're told about God is extremely important. If God is going to reveal himself, then through his word, then whatever is reported in the word has to be accurate concerning him. And this is where the devil spends so much of his time. It's what he had spent a lot of time doing today. He distorts the record that God has given in his word. And we we all know that this is the way that he started out with his temptation in the Garden of Eden. The very first temptation. Uh, The devil said to, to, to Eve, you shall not surely die. If you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God says you'll die, but you won't die. God lied to you. And from that time, it's been one distortion after another. And we see it here in 1 John. God has given a record of his son. And John says, if you distort that record, if you disbelieve that record, then you make God a liar. So we start with that. People have to hear the word, and what they hear must be the truth of the word. Joel Osteen's message doesn't cut it. Mormons are lying. The Jehovah Witnesses are lying. We've already seen how Roman Catholicism lies. John says that you may know that you have eternal life. And the Roman Catholic almost does it exactly as the devil would do it, using the devil's tactic. They say, you shall not know that you have eternal life. Now, secondly, is believing the word. So this is another stage that we go through to get our assurance. We have to believe what God says. Hearing's not enough. Something has to be done with that information. He says, these things have I written unto you that believe. Well, what are we to believe? Well, again, the information has to be correct concerning Christ. This is why we have in 1 John a doctrinal test of Christianity. No one is saved by believing false information. And there's some who say, well, it doesn't matter what you believe, just as long as you're sincere about it. And if that's true, I mean, if you think about that for a moment, if that's true, as long as you believe sincerely what the devil says, then you could be saved if you're just sincere about things. You remember that line that we read in that song, I believe for every drop of rain a flower grows? You can believe that ever so sincerely, but saving faith is not made up of that kind of faith. It's not that kind of belief. 
Now, the notion that you could believe anything just as long as it's sincere is so absurd that it's hard to believe that any rational person would ever make an argument concerning it. And yet that is essentially what this teaching is that says that Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus can be saved as long as they are sincere. I mean, that's nothing but a lot of bunk. Mother Teresa said that. Billy Graham says that. Robert Schuller says that. And this is what God or John calls making God a liar. You must believe, but you must believe the truth. Well, what is the truth? Look at verse 11. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Now, John's talking about belief, and eternal life is belief in his Son. So eternal life can't be belief in Allah. It can't be belief in Buddha. It's not in a thousand Hindu gods like cows and bugs and creeping things. Salvation is only in Jesus Christ, and it must be believed. It's not enough to say that the grace of God covers the sincerity of man, and the atonement of Christ covers the refusal of man to believe the record that God gave of his Son. That's not the teaching of the Bible. It's not the witness of the disciple. It's disciples. It's not the work of Christ. It is not the testimony of God. And so we start by hearing, we go on believing, to believing, and then thirdly, there is living in the Word. I mean, how could you miss this in this epistle, the teaching about living the truth? Now, what has John spoken here about consistently? Keeping commandments, keeping commandments, keeping commandments, keeping on keeping commandments. I mean, the proof of Christianity is keeping God's commandments. Now, that's not the method of our salvation. In one sense, it's not. You could never keep enough commandments in order to be saved. This is what James says in James 2.10. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all. So unless you're completely perfect and have never broken any of God's commandments, not even one, then you can forget about approaching God on the basis of law. And yet, the way of salvation is commandments. You say, now wait a minute. That's a blatant contradiction. You can't say that, that keeping commandments is not a way to get eternal life and then turn around and say that commandments are the way of salvation, that it is the way to eternal life. How can you say that? That's a contradiction. Well, I do say both, and it's not a contradiction. You can't keep the commandments perfectly. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't use his perfect law to save. So how does he do that? Well, he does it this way. He does it by grace. In grace, he allowed the law to be kept for you. That's what we call the earned righteousness of Christ. So he came to this earth and he kept God's law perfectly. And then when you believe, he transfers or he imputes, he charges the perfect obedience that he earned to your account. And so you're justified before God on the basis of Christ's perfect righteousness that's given you. So what God has never done, he's never released the, the uh, standard, he's never released the commandment that we have to have perfect obedience. But what he's done in grace is to allow Christ's perfect obedience to stand good for our imperfect obedience. In Romans 5.19 it says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. And the disobedience of one is Adam. 
That's what made all of us sinners. We're born with his nature. And the obedience of one by which we are saved is Jesus Christ. He's the one that makes believers righteous. Now the point then of bringing up commandments in John's argument is that all who have been justified by faith in Christ will demonstrate a change from being guilty sinners into pardoned sinners because Christ's life has been imparted to them. And so therefore they have the character of Christ in them. And so John says, here's the thing about it. Now, if you have received the righteousness of Christ, that means you can't be what you were before. You, you can't live like you did before. He says, you can't go on sinning. Do you remember that in the third chapter? Verses 8 through 10, he says, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil." Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he's born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. So we don't sin like we did before. Keeping God's commandments is proof that we have been delivered from sin's hold on us. Now, don't get anybody get upset because if you've been here long enough, you've been through that teaching in 1 John chapter 3 and what John means by this. He means that this cannot be the habitual way of your life. You, there must be a change. I'm not saying that people don't sin. I'm saying that we can't go on living in sin like we did before as if there's nothing happened to us at all. That does not happen to a true Christian. So this is one of those stages that we go to reach assurance. We start with hearing, we move on to believing, and then to keeping, and then finally we reach the ultimate stage, and that is confidence in the word. And this is where the belief actually becomes real to us. So we've taken all the previous steps and we arrive at this place where the Holy Spirit witnesses with our spirit that we are the children of God. And so we believe everything that God's word says about this salvation that we have in Christ. We have no doubt about it at all. So we accept the testimony of the apostles and we accept the testimony that Christ has made of himself. We accept the testimony of God the Father, what he's written in his word, and we accept the testimony of our own lives. And by that I mean we know the change that's taken place in our lives and we accept that testimony of being able and having the desire to keep God's commandments. We have confidence that we have that desire because we have eternal life abiding in us. Now that is the spirit then that witnesses with our spirit that we are the children of God. So then we arrive at this complete confidence, this state of assurance that eternal life is presently abiding in us. Now folks, that's the great realization that God wants us to have. And the reason he does is because a doubting Christian is tentative. A doubting Christian is virtually useless in God's kingdom. So God wants you to have this full assurance because when you have it, it means that you have gone through all of these steps. You've heard, you have believed, you have acted, and you are actually a living testimony to God's power of salvation. Now Paul had something to say to pastors in this regard. This is what he wrote in the epistle to Titus. For a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, 
no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Now, do you think that God says this to pastors with this thought in mind, that he says to the average Christian who would read this, you don't really need to worry about this. This is something that's been written for pastors. This is not important for you. This is what God says to pastors. Do you think that Paul meant that? I don't think that he meant that at all. I think he's written something here that he intends for all Christians. He wants all of us to live this way. He wants all of us to avail ourselves of the benefits that he's given, such as I was talking a moment ago about the books that I have in my office. All of us should avail ourselves of those kinds of materials to read and study and and get into God's word. Now, that might take you a while because you have your regular work to do. You've got your families to consider. You have all these different responsibilities. I can spend seven days a week doing this because... I have that time to do it. That's what I'm supposed to do. But Paul knows not everybody's going to be a pastor. But don't think that the same things that he says for a pastor are not important for the pew dweller. He means them for you as well. And if it takes time, it takes time. Avail yourselves of the same uh, books and things that I have. You can get them yourself and you can read them. Now, one more passage, and we're going to be through for tonight, and then the next time we'll take up this second important factor about assurance. So I'd like you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, 2 Peter 1, and this is a good place for us to stop because this is a scripture that's also about stages. And I want you to notice here that Peter, how Peter builds one grace upon another until he reaches the intended result. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse number 5. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ." But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and forgotten, hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. Now, do you see how each of those is a step? Each one builds towards assurance. These are people that have heard the word. They have believed the word. They started doing the word. You find that all in that section. And then what is the final outcome of it? Well, you look at verse 11. He gives us the outcome of these things. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what is that? That is eternal life. You go through the stages, and then when you get through, you end up in the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's assurance. That's what we're striving for. And you have to go through these stages. You have to have them all to finally get to that confidence that you have dwelling in you of eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the value that we get from studying it, learning about it, and the confidence that can come from that and knowing that 
we really do have eternal life abiding in us. So we can be here as Christians tonight without any fear, without any doubt, knowing that whatever happens to us in, in the next few minutes, the next hour, the next day, it really doesn't matter because we have eternal life in us right now and we know what will happen to us when we leave this world. Thank you, Lord, for that blessed assurance. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.